Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to TLS Voices, a series of readings and conversations brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Mika Ross-Southall. Nearly four centuries ago, John Aubrey, an eccentric antiquarian, wrote a pioneering collection of short biographical summaries about English writers, philosophers, parsons, politicians, merchants, squires and so on, past and present. Published posthumously as Brief Lives, Aubrey's manuscripts dished the dirt on personal, curious traits, often unmentioned in historical accounts, of people such as Thomas Hobbes, Francis Bacon, Robert Boyle, Venetia Stanley, Sir Walter Raleigh, Chaucer and Shakespeare. It was an accidental project, though. Aubrey's research was initially carried out to help his friend, Anthony Wood, who was compiling biographies of bishops and writers educated in Oxford from 1500 to 1690. Aubrey, however, had a wide circle of acquaintances and the idea of accumulating more profiles beyond Wood's plan took hold. Indeed, Wood said that Aubrey would rather break his neck down the stairs than miss a promising story. Yet Aubrey, the real man, has been largely overshadowed by his writings on other people. He asked for his own modest entry in Brief Lives to be interponed as a sheet of waste paper only in the binding of the book. He included a comprehensive timeline entitled Accidents of John Aubrey, which records sicknesses, arrests and bad luck, for example, having been attacked by sword three times and the death of his father in 1652, who left behind debts and lawsuits. I'm joined today by TLS contributor Ruth Skur, whose biography of John Aubrey is just about to be published. Ruth, you chose to write your biography of a biographer in diary form. Can you tell us a little more about why you settled on this unconventional approach? I wanted to find a way to foreground Aubrey so that he would be at the centre of my biography. And because he has been valued for what we can see through him, there was a tendency in more conventional biographies for him to be crowded out of the picture. 
And I was inspired by the very vivid sense of self that emerges from the diaries of Samuel Pepys, John Evelyn, um, Robert Hooke. Unfortunately, if we kept a diary, it has been lost and we don't have it. But I kept thinking to myself, if only we had his diary, he would not be crowded out of his own diary. No one is crowded out of their own diary. So I decided to reconstruct a diary for him by going through all the remaining manuscripts, letters, other people's as well as his, and pulling together all the information that is scattered through those documents and putting it into chronological order. And then beyond that, I've wanted to erect a, a scaffolding of my own words that would allow the reader full access to to Aubrey's so that it would be possible to to read the book as a continuous text and understand not just what's happening with Aubrey but also the um, important events of the century and the important people that he is interacting with. So in constructing the diary, I used as many as possible of his own words, but I have modernised them so that they are, they are more um, accessible for, for the contemporary reader. But it is a diary that's based on the historical evidence and one that shows him living vividly day by day, um, month by month, with necessary gaps where we don't know where he was or what he was doing. So in a more conventional biography, there is the tendency to try and fill those gaps with speculation or bets. But the diary form allowed me to simply acknowledge that sometimes we don't know and we have to accept the silence. So when Aubrey is silent, he he doesn't speak in my book. So there are three distinct kinds of entry in the diary. There are longer ones which are based on Um, his descriptions of events, conversations drawn from his writing or from other people's letters to him. And then there are shorter notes about personal events that occurred um, on specific days. And finally, there are some accounts of the events of the time that I have added, and those begin with the words, on this day. So I'm going to read some extracts from early on in the book when Aubrey is a student at Oxford during the Civil War and uh, we're in the year 1643 when the court, um, Charles I's court, has, has moved to Oxford and is in residence there. And the city is crammed full of people, soldiers, courtiers, absolutely absolutely to bursting point. So here are some short entries from Aubrey's diary of that period that I've created. I am made much of by the scholars. This city suits me well. I studied my reflection in the looking glass today. I'm almost 17 years old and must by now be fully grown, of middling height, with a quick look about me. My clothes are smart, black velvet, a plush gip and silver shoulder belt. I cut a sparkish figure in the town.
Many of the courtiers have brought their wives and families to Oxford. Suddenly the city is full of beautiful women. Lady Isabella Tyne, daughter of the Earl of Holland, aged about 19, is staying in Balliol College with her husband, Sir James Tyne. She comes often to visit her intimate friend, fine Mistress Fanshawe, who is staying at Trinity with her husband, John Fanshawe, the poet. These two young women came to chapel this morning half-dressed, like angels. For a frolic, they tried to visit the President's lodgings, but old Ralph Kettle could see that they meant to make fun of him and said to Mistress Fanshawe, Madam, your husband and father I bred up here, and I knew your grandfather. I know you to be a gentlewoman. I will not say you are a whore, but get you gone for a very woman. These dissolute times, the lively courtiers, the soldiers and their rough ways, grieve the President. He's taken to standing by the gate into the college and observing the persons who come to walk in our grove. It has become like Hyde Park in London. So the next entry is from the same year in April. Camp fever is raging in Oxford. I've fallen sick with smallpox. It will unpolish my complexion. My father is summoning me home again for fear that I cannot recover in this disease-wracked city. But I'm bedridden and cannot leave, nor do I wish to. I know what a lonely life awaits me in the country, far from books, far from ingenious conversation. Whereas here I lie, a scurvy antiquary, entertained by my faithful friends at least. So Ruth, did you come across any particularly interesting lives in Aubrey's manuscripts? In my book, I included some extracts from from the lives so that people could, when we got to that point, understand what the material is like that I've been working with. And I'm going to read um, some extracts, first of all, from the life of Robert Boyle, the chemist who Aubrey knew for a long time and with whom he collaborated through the Royal Society and through their circle of friends interested in science. Robert Boyle. The Honourable Robert Boyle Esquire, the fifth son of Richard Boyle, the first Earl of Cork, was born at Lismore, anciently a great town with a university and 20 churches, in the county of Cork, the 25th day of January, anno 1627. He was nursed by an Irish nurse after the Irish manor, where they put the child into a pendulous satchel instead of a cradle, with a slit for the child's head to peep out. He learnt his Latin, went to the University of Leiden, travelled in France, Italy and Switzerland. I've oftentimes heard him say that after he had seen the antiquities and architecture of Rome, he esteemed none anywhere else. He speaks Latin very well and very readily as most men I have met with. I have heard him say that when he was young, he read over Cowper's Dictionary, wherein I think he did very well, and I believe he is much beholding to Cowper for his mastership of that language. He's very tall, about six foot high and straight, very temperate and virtuous and frugal, a bachelor, keeps a coach, sojourns with his sister. His greatest delight is chemistry. He has at his sister's a noble laboratory and several servants, apprentices to him, to look to it. 
He's charitable to ingenious men that are in want, and foreign chemists have had large proof of his bounty, for he will not spare for cost to get at any rare secret. At his own costs and charges, he got translated and printed the New Testament in Arabic to send into the Mahometan countries. He has not only a high renown in England, but abroad, and when foreigners come hither, tis one of their curiosities to make him a visit. His works alone may make a library. Most of Aubrey's lives are lives of eminent men, um, for the most part his contemporaries. Venetia Stanley is a rare example of a woman who has her own life within the brief lives. Venetia Stanley was daughter of Sir Stanley. She was a most beautiful, desirable creature, was left by her father to live with a tenant and servants at Enston Abbey in Oxfordshire. But as private as that place was, it seems her beauty could not lie hid. The young eagles had espied her, and she was sanguine and tractable, and of so much suavity, which to abuse was great pity. In those days, Richard, Earl of Dorset, eldest son and heir to the Lord Treasurer, lived in the greatest splendour of any nobleman of England. Among other pleasures that he enjoyed, Venus was not the least. This pretty creature's fame quickly came to his lordship's ear, who made no delay to catch at such an opportunity. I have now forgot who first brought her to town, but I have heard my uncle Danvers say, who was her contemporary, that she was so commonly courted and by grandees that was written over her lodging one night, Pray come not near, for Dame Venetia Stanley lodgeth here. The Earl of Dorset, aforesaid, was her greatest gallant. He was extremely enamoured of her, and had one, if not more, children by her. He settled on her an annuity of £500 a year. Among other sparks of that time, Sir Kenelm Digby grew acquainted with her, and fell so much in love with her that he married her, much against the good will of his mother. But he would say that a wise man and lusty could make an honest woman out of a brothel house. She had a most lovely and sweet-turned face, delicate dark brown hair. She had a perfect healthy constitution, strong, good skin, well-proportioned, much inclining to a bonaroba, near altogether. Her face a short oval, dark brown eyebrow, about which much sweetness, as also in the opening of her eyelids. The colour of her cheeks was just that of the damask rose, which is neither too hot nor too pale. She was of a just stature, not very tall. She died in her bed suddenly. Some suspected that she was poisoned. When her head was opened, there was found but little brain, which her husband imputed to her drinking of viper wine. But spiteful women would say, "'Twas a viper husband who was jealous of her, that she would steal a leap." For more on the art of biography, turn to Stuart Kelly's review of Ruth Skur's book in this week's TLS which also features Anthony Phelan on Walter Benjamin's disembodied sexuality, shameless dogs and gods in ancient Greece, a look into Shakespeare's regal Welsh connection, Michael Saylor on the secret history of Wonder Woman, Adrian Towden on the winners of this year's Translation Prize, Galen Strawson on the philosophy behind Tom Stoppard's new play, and much more. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, 
the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS, life in every word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.